You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. We had to invent a new art form based on a form of music and expressionism that America had thrown into the garbage bin. And we went through the collective cultural garbage bin and scraped it out and put a new twist on it and called it the British Invasion. Singer, songwriter, Eric Burden. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, who would have guessed the little boy born into a lower middle class family in England who grew up with asthma, grew up being teased by his classmates, loved to smoke and drink beer when he was, by the time he was 10, who would have guessed that would have grown up to be one of the world's greatest rock singers? Well, that's kind of the short version of the life of Eric Burden who in 1962 joined a musical quartet from his hometown, and they became The Animals. Eric Burden was their lead singer. Now, The Animals, along with the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Hollies, they were part of the British invasion, and a major part of it, the, the Animals had a string of hits. There is a house in New In 2002, Eric Burden wrote an autobiography, a book called Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. And that's when I had the chance to talk with him for a few minutes over the phone. So here now from 2002, Eric Burden. I figured it's a time in my life where I should really put down my memories um, as they remain fresh in my mind. You never know. Tomorrow they be gone. They could be gone at my <laughs> age. Who knows? Um, and also, I think... I would like to continue um, putting pen to paper. I have, I have other schemes and ideas and plans that I want to develop. You do tell a good story in this book. I have to tell you, this, this, is, this is a page-turner. And I think oh, this is you. all true. Um, unfortunately, yes. Well, you, the one thing I admire about a book like this is that you don't try to sugarcoat it. I mean, you know, the good you tell us, the bad you tell us, the ugly you tell us, and, and the, the good times, the bad, the times you got screwed. It's all in here. Well, in rock and roll, believe me, there is plenty of the good, bad, and the ugly. And I often look upon rock and roll and other rock and roll books that I've read as kind of like, you know, they could be like the Western genre in a way. You, you've got the same basic thing. You've got the lonely guy joins a band of renegades. Their, their aim to get the, the gold at the end of a trip across a long, wide, open desert. And in that long, wide, open desert, there's nothing but uh, Indians, hostiles, bandits. And uh, they represent, in my head, record companies, agents, managerial situations, the like. And at the, at the end of the desert, there's a running stream with a beautiful Indian maiden, with a, you know, scooping water up and um, gold all over the floor. So you know, it's, it's kind of the same um, setup in a way. I mean, I could, I could go on writing more rock and roll uh, stories. I think there's many more to be, to be told. Well, as long as you've got the ability to sing, you've got the upper hand, don't you, over all the accountants and the lawyers and the executives? Not really, because the nature of the business is um, you can't go around picking up 20 grand at the end of the night and walk the streets of, uh, of Chicago or New York 
with bundles of money sticking out of your pocket. And the nature of the business dictates that the artist is in one location and your money goes to another location. So unless you've got people that you can trust backing you up behind you, you're in a very tenuous situation. Like maybe the Hell's Angels? <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Um, <laughs> Do what it takes, I guess. <laughs> that is, that's a road to take, if you wish. <laughs> one, of the, one of the fascinating things, I'm a baby boomer. I mean, I grew up with all the music that you're talking about, and it is just, it is just utterly fascinating to see the, the, the various, the family tree of rock, as it were, and to see all the branches as they come off. For example, I was only about, what, 15 pages into your book before I, you were, you're telling the story about being at the scene club. You're smashing a piano, and Pete Townsend's probably there. Maybe that's where he got the idea. Maybe. I've often thought about that, and it's been mentioned to me by other people. That would certainly seem to make sense. Yeah, it it does make sense. I mean, that was, I think that was the first time that I know of, of any band literally um, destroying the stage. And I and I did it out of, um, out of a pure need for more room on the stage, because this big white grand piano represented um, it represented the past it represented what this club had been it represented the jazz era you know with a, th- with a threesome on stage and some guy tinkling away at this monstrous piano which was never in tune anyway you couldn't use it so why should it take up half the stage you know so I just thought it's time for it to go it, it strikes me as some of the best things in life are thought up uh, at the spur of the moment and not even for the reason you thought. I mean, if you had sat down and said, gosh, I am now going to write a song or we're going to record a song that will live on forever, you couldn't have done that. It has to happen sort of by on its own power, doesn't it? Yeah, the best things that happen in the, in the recording process are when you are in the, in the room with the guys, with the, with the working team. And as a writer, as a writer, a vocalist, you have an idea, and it literally spills off your lips onto the tape, or on, in these days, into the computer. And the band are knowledgeable enough to provide you with the floor, this, the the ground to build a, a castle on. You know that, that and that's. That's the only way, I, the best way I can describe it at the moment. And things that happen quickly to me is always great art. Things that you laboriously, laboriously have to hack away at. Um, it's it could be great craftsmanship. You can be a great artisan, but to me, the great artists, and I mean graphic artists as well as. Um, any, any form of the performing arts and graphic art, like Salvador Dali and Picasso, they all worked fast and furious, and they were industrious as well as anything else. Well, as you describe it in the, in the chapter early on, talking about uh, the, the House of the Rising Sun, you said a spark hit the room, was caught on the magnetic tape, and the magic began. You can't orchestrate magic. It just has to, just has to happen, doesn't it? Yeah, but it does exist. Harry Potter. <laughs> That's right. And now later on in the book, you said that the House of the Rising Sun had changed your life forever. Did you have any inkling of how it had changed your life until many years later? I knew it instantly, and, uh, and I knew many years later that it would fulfill um, both 
my worst fears and my brightest dreams on all levels. Here's a white kid that stuck his neck out at school and said, I'm going to live the blues. I want to I want to go to America. I want to find out the source of the blues. I want it to rub off on me. I want it to be it. I want it to touch me. I mean, I even wrote into a diary. I even, wrote, I even carved, um, you know, I blooded my hand and wrote the word blues in a book in blood. I was that incensed by it. I was that swept away by the concept of this form of music. So um, it was no surprise to me that uh, when I came to America that um, it would rub off on me to the to the degree of where it was um, it was projected by a friend of mine who was um, one of the big blues cats in in England and started off the British blues movement that if I was going to do this that I would be worried wide known, known worldwide, uh, but I would never have any money. And he's, he's right. After the short break, why Eric Burton never got rich from House of the Rising Sun. Now back to my 2002 conversation with Eric Burton. Why didn't you get any money from that? Well, one of the members of the band uh, was sharp enough and clever enough to um, have his name only on the uh, on the recording and we were stupid enough uh, young enough to um, understand that as soon, soon as that was order was carried through that um, we were in effect writing ourselves out of the picture but it happens to everybody doesn't it um, it happens to a lot of people yeah um, it doesn't happen to everybody but it happens to a lot of people Man, I can't tell you. I can't tell you the number of books like yours that I've read over the years that all say essentially the same thing. That gee, I, I signed this thing. They said it was going to be good for me. And I had a number one record and I never saw it again. You know, it, it, it just it, it happens time after time. It does. Um, some people give up at that point in time and <laughs> fade away. Um, others, uh, you know, struggle on. And uh, I, I decided to struggle on because I thought that, uh, well, you know, it's it's still the best game in town, and anyway, I made that promise to, to um, journey to the land of the blues and find out what it was all about, find out why this music has, has such an intriguing, special, special power that it could actually become a bona fide worldwide youth peace movement, which is what what rock and roll music actually was in its finest hour. Now, you also tell the story in the book about uh, uh, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez being on the road one day. They're listening to House of the Rising Sun, and, and he stops the car, and he yells, Electric! Electric! And is this, is this a true story, too? Well, yeah, I uh, believe so. I mean, I, I'd heard that story from a couple of people, and uh, I was about to introduce it to, into, the, into the book, and I thought twice about it then phone call to my drummer in London, my original drummer, who said he was in the room at uh, a party where Bob was in attendance where that story was related. And here's the other thing I liked about your book. I have to tell you, you've got all the names in here, all the the, 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 the icons of the music of that time, but your book doesn't come across like you're name dropping. It. I've had a great life, um, and it continues. I mean, it. I get tired from time to time, sure. I mean, this this Christmas and New Year, I bit off more than I could chew, and I'm paying for it now in the form of a 
very bad cold and um, mm. wondering what I'm going to do next because I had such a blazing Christmas and New Year. Um, and I had no idea that that was going to happen. One minute I'm sitting in the house and uh, my girlfriend and I are wondering what we're going to do because uh, she had to go back to Europe anyway. And the next minute I get a telephone call. We want you in uh, in Spain to do a benefit. Oh, and uh, the tickets for the flight will be in the mail the next day. And then we were off. I was off to Europe with her, which I had, not, had no idea was going to happen. If the animals were just getting their start now in 2002, what would be different? Um, I, I don't think I can address that problem. I mean, you know, that's like asking me about, you know, do you stay? Do you still use drugs? <laughs> it's like you know, my body's different. The blood in my system's different. Well, if, you, if you were a young you know, man, if, if if you were you know, if you the five young men, you know, just getting together, you get your whole life ahead of you. But now it's two thousand two instead of nineteen sixty two. What, what would what do you suppose? Would your music be different? Would you would you sign different kinds of contracts? Well, of course, everybody. You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. <laughs> but um, you know, yeah. I hope that the book brings across that the, the the 60s, the early 60s, was an incredible period to be young in. Um, I, there's nothing that can compare with it that I can see today. And I don't know where the next wave is going to come from. I only see kids dressing in retrofit and thinking that they're cool. And I'm... I'm not saying it out loud, but I'm saying to myself, yeah, I want you to think of something else. You know, I want you to come up with your own style. Um, it's just that, uh, you know, our uh, early 60s growth was was deeply rooted in important, huge, important sociological, political things, like the end of World War II. Rationing was still in place in Britain. Um you, kids were running around in the streets with no shoes on their feet. Um, there was massive unemployment. Uh, you, you had uh, school teachers <clears throat> in the schools that were just selling you a bunch of, of lies. You know, there was this dream of a new Elizabethan era coming. In 1953, there was the uh, was the, the coronation of the new queen. So on up into the 60s, we had these wonderful, great expectations only to find that they were smashed on the rocks of having to march off to your your older brothers or uncles, having to march off to Korea to fight the communists. And um, in art school, you know, you, the, forget the dream of being an artist. You know, we all wanted to be starving artists in a garret in Paris, and painting and oils. And now forget that, you know. Now that we've we've taught you, uh, you've been you've done five years and you've passed your your final you know diploma. We're only get, we're going to give you your letters after your name. Doesn't mean anything. You're going to be working in a factory. Well, thanks, but no thanks. So we had to invent a new art form, and that new art form was based on a um, form of music and expressionism that America had thrown into the garbage bin. And we went through the collective cultural garbage bin and scraped it out, put a new twist on it, and called it the British Invasion. At least the press called it the British Invasion. 
but it was really American music rehashed. Eric Burden is 81 now and still making music. And you can find easy Amazon links to Eric Burden's book at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my 2007 interview with another British import, Donovan. I come from a storytelling tradition. Uh, in fact, uh, it's clear to me now that I'm a reincarnated bard uh, of, of a Celtic uh, order uh, who uh, can teach through music. And my 2005 conversation with another UK import who never forgot where he came from, Graham Nash. His greatest dream was to attend the, the soccer cup oh, final at mm. Wembley Stadium. He never made it. So when Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young played Wembley Stadium at a concert, the first thing I did was go down onto the field and start kicking a ball around for my dad. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything. Now that the Supreme Court has overturned the Roe v. Wade ruling, we'll revisit my 1993 interview with the young Texas, then young Texas attorney who successfully argued Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court in 1973. My 1993 conversation with attorney Sarah Weddington. There is no dignity when you must flee the laws of your own state where doing the best you know for yourself and your future is deemed criminal. And I wanted to do everything I could to see that other women never went to that back alley. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.